1: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of language. We thank you for the capacity of language to give, to breed life. We thank you for the ability to convey through words grace, forgiveness, redemption, restoration. To acknowledge the glories of your creation and you as creator. And especially, Lord, we thank you for the grace of being able to speak the gospel to each other and to a lost and dying world. And we pray, Lord, for your help in mastering our tongues that we may bring life. We praise you and thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week's sermon uh, from Proverbs was on what not to say and who not to speak to and when not to speak at all. And priority was given to that consideration first, in keeping with the acknowledgement of the Apostle James in his epistle concerning the tongue. This is well known. I'm sure you're familiar with it, but I will remind you of it now. James chapter 3, starting in verse 2. We all stumble. In many ways, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also, the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great... A forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. That is a dire assessment there, but it is a sober one. James is not holding back. And that's because, as he recognizes power contained in our tongues to destroy is profound. We cannot be danced around. We cannot beat around the bush when it comes to this. And again, the observations of James there are right in line with the substance of last week's sermon. But equally true is what he teaches at the end of that same chapter, and this. is right in line with this week's sermon. Continuing in the very next line from where we left off, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Last week we emphasized Solomon's statement that life and death are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs 18 21, and a much greater extent there we emphasize the capacity of words to harm and to kill i.e. the death aspect of that consideration and we sort of left behind or minimized their capacity to create and build this week we will reverse this we are setting out to learn to speak words that as james says are wise and therefore pure peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and ultimately righteous. We were right to begin where we did, in acknowledging the destructive power of the tongue. But we would be equally wrong to ignore its capacity to give and to breed life. And certainly in order to ignore this, we would have to let cynical minds edit an enormous amount of Scripture, starting with the first lines in the first account. Genesis 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness. He called night and there was evening and there was morning one day. But continuing on, verse 6, then God said, verse 9, then God said, verse 10, God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters. He called seas. Verse 11, then God said, verse 14, same, verse 20, same, verse 22, God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth, verse 24, then God said. Now I did not mean to, yada, yada, the creation of the world and nearly everything in it there. Rather, I skimmed for the sake of time, and I also skimmed to facilitate through isolation and emphasis my primary purpose here. Which is to show you God's priority upon speech and the way that He uses it. From the beginning, God gives life to all things through His Word. And in fact, that assertion skips a couple steps. Because before, God can use speech and language to create. He needs to create speech and language themselves. And though we don't have an explicit statement in Genesis 1 about God creating sound in language, indeed he has. And many a, a, a linguistic historian, and I've read articles to this effect, has tried to sift through various contemporary languages in search of that first one, that progenitor, trying to trace their way back, what they should have sought. Far more so was the first speaker. But here's the question, why does God speak at all? Isn't this a strange sort of theater for a God of infinite power with no physical form? And that last part's key because given that he has no body, he does therefore also not naturally possess in his being any of the biological accoutrements necessary for speech. Nevertheless, he goes out of his way to supernaturally produce sound in order to speak creation into being are uh, a lot of miracles happening in Genesis 1 and 2, and so it's easy to understand why people miss this miracle, but indeed it is a miracle. A being who is spirit, producing sound and speech without lungs, a voice box, a mouth, or a tongue. It's yet another display of supernatural power. But what is his motivation for speaking now? It's got to be pretty significant, considering the fact that this is surely the first time that he ever has given that He would have no utility for it at any point previous to this. Eternal Father, Eternal Son, Eternal Spirit, three persons, one being, would need have they for words. So why does God speak at all? Well, to start to answer this, can we first agree that language is is a tool? Okay, language is simply an instrument of me, communicating my thoughts, my ideas to you, and you reciprocating the same to me. And so then if language is a tool, and we seek to understand why God created and utilized said tool in creation, perhaps we should consider the beings that inherited this tool nearly immediately after the Lord created it. Indeed, and that brings us, well, to us. Verse 26 Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image and the image of God He created him, male and female, he created them. So we are created by the breath of God. And once created, man used God's good gift of language not to create life as only God can, But to recognize and to categorize life at the command of God, Genesis 2.19, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And here next is the first recorded verbatim statement from any member of our race, and the nature of this too is telling Genesis 2:22 through 25. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then as Moses expounds, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we are inching ever closer to our answer. But here let's recap. In the beginning... God creates all things with words. And then he bequeaths this good gift of language to one race of being on earth alone. And that is the human race represented by Adam. And Adam takes this good gift and he uses it per the command of God to name all the kinds of life that God has created. And with the gift of language that has been handed to him by his creator, he acknowledges that when his life is combined with the life of his helpmate, they together form a sort of new life. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And as Moses said, the two shall become one flesh. So are you ready for the answer to the question? God speaks when yet there are no ears to hear Him because through Moses, millennia later, He will teach at least the following two lessons through their example. First, the Word of God brings life, is life, and is essential to life. As Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Is that lesson anywhere more clear than it is in the opening chapters of Genesis? Second, God speaks life because God's image bearers likewise are to use God's gift of speech to accomplish the same good ends on behalf of God. I want you to consider for a moment, if you can even conceive of such a thing that there was a time in the history of our race however brief when every word said by us in God's creation brought, recognized, categorized or celebrated life, that is it it's the totality of how language was used all words spoken pertained to supported, recognized life Of course, the fall came and that changed. Prior to that, that was their only use. In a world without sin, it would still be their only use. Now, I want you to try to consider the even less conceivable reality that well after the fall, there was a man who walked the earth for 33 years and never, ever, ever uttered a single solitary word that was not to go back to James's statement, pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and righteous. Now I want you to consider that by that man's righteousness, you, if indeed you are in Christ, have been made righteous, so that when your speech is judged by God, it's Christ who has the last word, based upon the way that he spoke and not you. But also consider, because he spoke perfectly, you and I may speak godly, and consider also that he sent his servant Solomon to teach us how to speak life to our spouses, our children, the lost and the found alike. And to that end, we are going to enter into the body of our study. We will enumerate this into points, and we will begin with (coughs) point number one. Communicate wisdom Wisely. Communicate wisdom wisely. Now, because we've already stressed communicating wisdom, this point is more going to address methods than substance, and by far we will be spending the majority of our remaining time on this. So to this end, the first aspect of what I want you to consider is that the primary way wise counsel is best given and received is in real time. What I mean to say is you are to use circumstances as they unfold to communicate the wisdom of God to others. Uh, with respect to children in particular, Deuteronomy 11:18 through 19 says, You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. Now, we live in the context of a one-size-fits-all, government-run, sit-in-the-chair-and-shut-your-mouth educational system. And as a result of that, it can be easy to forget what is obviously true about human learning, and that is that though there is a time to sit in the chair and be quiet, and that kind of learning has its place, actually, we were not primarily designed by God to learn in that way. Situations, as they occur, present need. They also create curiosity. And those things more naturally become the basis for education, the springboards for learning. They make the soil of the heart and of the mind much more fertile. Again, you shall teach them to your sons, talking of them, when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. Now, is Moses there depicting a classroom setting? Of course not. We also ask you, how much of life and daily coming and going And the daily grind and this mortal rigmarole is encompassed in when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. The answer, of course, is all of it. So Moses just said there, teach about life through the regular course of life, obviously using life as it naturally occurs. Again, this doesn't negate all of institutional learning. God does command that a man must preach while everyone else in the congregation listens. But this certainly is a commentary on what should be the primary source of the majority of our learning. And Jesus taught like this all the time, constantly throughout his example. You can see it. Walk by a farmer's field. Here's a lesson about agriculture that really isn't about agriculture. that's actually about the human soul and its need of salvation. Walk by a vineyard, probably at least, in John's Gospel. And here's a lesson about grapes and grapevines. And you can think of many more examples beyond this of him using natural circumstances to clarify spiritual truths and using them as they occur in front of the people that he is teaching. And of course, nobody outside of Christ has greater mastery of using circumstances as they take place to teach lessons when ears and hearts are most ready to learn than our author, Solomon. Here's one of about 500 examples of this in the book of Proverbs. Chapter 21, verse 11, this is a passage that we had looked at previously In another context, when the scoffer is punished, the naive become wise. So the naive walks by the fool who's getting beaten for his foolishness and says, you know what, I will avoid the consequence of that by not engaging in the foolishness that brought that consequence to bear. My point here, though, is does anybody believe that Solomon's first lesson to his son, to that effect, was given to him in this book? Finally, he got around to writing it down here you go, kid, here's all the things that I should have taught you but never did. No, of course not. We all recognize what's manifestly true with this, which is that these are lessons that were given to his sons throughout the course of his life as certain events occurred and they were later compiled into this book for posterity's sake so that the people of God of all time could learn from them. Solomon certainly shared these lessons in real time. For example, Solomon and his son walk by a fool's back that's receiving a rod, and Solomon says, hey, don't do that. Maybe Solomon and son walk by the red light district, and Solomon says something like, look there. I see among the naive and discern among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner. And he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and looks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him, and later suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now, therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. for many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her way is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death, and you can see that fool right there. Dead man walking. To which Solomon, Jr. may have said, hey, wait a minute, don't you have so many wives that they're literally on like a three-year rotation if you spend a night with one of them? To which Solomon says, do as I say, kid, not as I do. Anyhow, wisdom and instruction is a hands-on enterprise. And it needs to be. Okay? Again, this is not the end of institutional learning. They had the Moses seat. We have the pulpit. But these things were never considered to be sufficient. You can teach, for example, a child that drunkenness will destroy them. You can teach this lesson at any time. I've taught it from the pulpit. It's, a, it's something that needs to be taught from the pulpit. It's something that you need to impart to your children. But when, God forbid, you have a family member or a close friend that your child knows or knows of, and they destroy their lives with alcohol, that's the time for that lesson. You've got to strike while the iron's hot, so to speak when we are sitting in our houses and walking or driving along the road or lying down, or when we rise or are rising up, God is presenting greater opportunities for life-giving reproof to us by creating the circumstances that make ears much more attentive that those listening may come to dwell among the wise. Proverbs fifteen thirty-one: He whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. So do not waste the opportunities that you are given. I was given an opportunity here not that long ago in the form of a pipe bursting on the second story, and we discovered this on Christmas Eve at 11 o'clock p.m. So we walk into this situation of absolute chaos, and this is a positive story, by the way. I have a negative story with respect to my character later, so it'll balance out. But um, once we got this situation under control, which took quite a long time, we didn't know if we had any presents left because they'd been absolutely soaked. Um, and I mean soaked. Couldn't have been wetter if they had been thrown into a lake. We had no living room to open presents in in the morning. It took three o'clock, till three o'clock in the morning to even get to bed. Um, and so it was a bad, bad situation. And so once I got the uh, water situation under control and all the, objects that needed to be removed, removed, I started to become concerned for my children and their well-being because this is obviously a lot to take when you're a kid, especially at that time. And so I pulled the family around and I said, you know, we're going to stand here in a circle and we're going to pray. And what we are going to pray is actually praise exclusively. So I want each of you to pick something that you are grateful to the Lord concerning And praise him for that. I said we have much to ask for. Obviously. But there will be time for the asking. Right now it is imperative that we praise. That opportunity doesn't come often. The opportunity to teach them that praising God transcends current circumstances. So use those opportunities when they are given to you. Or more negatively. When there are examples of church discipline. That don't end well that end in excommunication. Your children are here. Use that, parent. Seize upon that opportunity to show them that there is a consequence to sin. You may have noticed that I allow my children to stay in here. In fact, I insist upon it when there are church discipline situations. And that causes a whole set of concerns for me that it doesn't for anybody else because I'm often on the receiving end of certain things. Nevertheless, I wouldn't have them out of here. Not at all. Let them learn. As a father, there aren't I can't control all of what they will become. I cannot prevent them ultimately from breaking my heart by dishonoring the Lord. But I can show them the consequences of it as it occurs in real time. Next, under the rubric of communicating wisdom, we have a lesson specifically or parents and along those lines also those who will someday become parents and that is indoctrinate your children I did not misspeak indoctrinate your children let me give you two satanic tropes that have been used by the devil in the last half century or so with tremendous success with respect to religious people they are first off indoctrination is bad and second we should teach our children how to think and not what to think Oh, but what say you, Solomon? Proverbs twenty-two, fifteen: Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Hmm. If foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child, then it kind of seems like maybe <clears throat> if I don't teach that kid what and how to think through indoctrination, he's probably going to destroy himself and get destroyed by God in hell because he does not have within himself what he would require in order to make wise decisions and in order to come to wise conclusions. And by the way, since that's the standard of the devil that's given to us constantly, we should step back and ask, does he live by his own standard? Are the ones who are deeply offended by your religious indoctrination of your children abstaining from their own religious indoctrination of children? I don't think that they are. Well, I think that they aggressively indoctrinate They present to you what they uphold as the moral high road as though it were. Well, they take the low road and steal the hearts and souls of your children. Given that a child is a blank slate, all education is indoctrination. You cannot educate a child who knows nothing without indoctrinating them. It's not possible because they know nothing. And what we give our children when they are very young is what to think because they don't have a framework to establish any kind of a conclusion. As they grow, though, increasingly, we do teach them how to think and how to think is worldview. Okay? We see the world through the lens of there is a God. First of all, He is personal. He is relational. He is our Creator. He is our Redeemer. We are made in His image. And this then becomes the framework So, of course, we teach them how and what to think. Of course, we indoctrinate or take the doctrines of the Christian faith and put them in them. Satan constantly establishes rules that are totally contrary to Scripture, but they seem to have like an air of humility or something. And so you have foolish religious people abide by them because we need to be nicer than God, I guess. But then the devil, at the same time, actually wields the power that he forbade us from wielding, and then we lose everything. This is a consistent pattern that's been happening for a really long time. When it comes to the souls of your children, you must not let it happen here. Solomon certainly indoctrinates, and catechesis is as old as our faith. You go all the way back to the Shema. Here, O Israel, the Lord is one. Or the Hillel, Psalm 113 to 118 that they all knew by heart. Or you can talk about the Lord's Prayer or so many other passages of Scripture. Yes, indoctrinate your children because if you don't, I guarantee you, Satan will. But understand here that the reason why God's people indoctrinate is very different than the reason that Satan does. Our indoctrination grounds our children into truth, whereas Satan indoctrinates because his doctrines are contrary to reality. So without indoctrination, especially at the point at which a person is a child, these things are not going to gain acceptance. They're denials of basic biology. So he indoctrinates to contravene reality. We indoctrinate because we want our children to understand reality and have that foundation in truth. The next time somebody says to you, you Christians indoctrinate your kids, say, Amen. Thank you. I was really hoping that people were noticing and you have. I didn't mean it as a compliment. Yeah, but I choose to take it that way. So, <clears throat> Also, and this pertains to everyone and not just to parents or those who will be, communicate wisdom aggressively and persuasively. Communicate wisdom aggressively and persuasively. Proverbs 123. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. So we should say there, Hey, You! I have the words of life. Turn in here and hear them. Proverbs 120, wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. Wisdom isn't passive. Again, wise words are life. So if wisdom is withheld, then our silence brings death. As Proverbs 5.23 says, he will die for lack of instruction. And in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. Don't let that happen as much as it depends upon you. In this, there is also certainly, and if not primarily, a strong admonition for evangelism. That is life and death in the ultimate sense. You should be out there warning, speaking with persuasive words about the gospel, about this whole message of life. So be aggressive. Also be persuasive. Proverbs 11:30 The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. Wins. Fighting to win. And this here echoes of I don't box as one beating the air from 1 Corinthians 9. I don't speak as one who just likes hearing the sound of my own voice or who is tossing my words to the wind or who has even worse. Lost the debate. When it comes to these things, I can't lose the debate. You know why? Because there is no debate. Truth is. I have already won. Now I am to take this and go win out there with it. Proverbs sixteen twenty one: The wise in heart will be called understanding and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. the heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Now persuasiveness, according to Solomon, I think has at least three essential elements. First, there is truth, and truth is paramount. That's what makes it persuasive. It's real. Okay, You don't have to lie in order to dress it up to get people to accept it. The truth itself is persuasive. And this is everywhere attested to in Proverbs, so I won't relitigate that issue. As for the remaining two, though, they're both contained in Proverbs 25, 11 through 12. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Now, determining right circumstances means reading the room in modern speak. And this is the second essential element of persuasion. We are to assess the need of the moment accurately, requires wisdom and discernment, and then we are to respond accordingly. Back to last week's sermon, this requires good listening. And going on in verse 12, like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. So then the third element of persuasion is account for your individual listener. Are they wise? What do they need? How can their needs be best communicated to them? Because of their particular nature. Certainly the wise reprover exercised wisdom in his approach as well as his counsel. So to bring this home, brother and sister Christian, your presentation of spiritual truth should not be dry. Speech about God and his people and truth should be passionate. It should be well articulated. You should have thought out ahead of time what you're going to say so that you don't get into that moment and say something wrong or foolish not for the sake of your own pride but because you speak on behalf of God. And there can certainly be excesses here when it comes to this issue of pride or with this issue of passion, rather. We can focus in on this to the exclusion of other things that are much more important or very important also. Andy Stanley would be a great example of this. Man, is he a smooth talker and a godless heretic and a son of the devil. And there are a lot out there like that, but there is also the opposite, a a trap. Sometimes you have a man who puts no effort into fluidity of speech because sometimes, or somehow rather, he sees doing so as diminishing the work of the Spirit. I've encountered certain Calvinists to this effect. Not only is this clearly inconsistent with the examples of the various prophets and apostles and Christ, it also denies the way that God created us. We are, as we have been learning, emotional beings. And that emotion is injected into everything that we do, and that certainly includes speech. Additionally, this dry approach misses what preaching fundamentally is, which is communication. And one big aspect of communication is not losing the attention of who you're speaking to. Not all of this is on the speaker. I will say that in my own defense, all right? A lot of this is on you. But some of it certainly is on me. Look to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. You can love what he said or you can hate what he said. But you ex- if you existed in the context in which he originally preached that and he was talking to you, you certainly weren't bored by it. Okay? Communication of wisdom preached privately or in the public square or in local churches is to be compelling and again, we're preaching a message of life. And so the message fundamentally in and of itself is the most compelling of all. So life-giving truth must be accompanied by passion and, of course, as in all things, good. Jesus is the greatest example of this combination. Here is the life-giving truth. John six sixty-six. many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And here's the passion. Luke nineteen, forty one through forty two. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. And a passion without truth is just another sales pitch some tchotchke that nobody needs but truth without passion will be perceived in the same way if you believe it why isn't that demonstrated in the tone of your voice why are you not being more demonstrative, why are you stoic when you're talking about Christ Or that's because of the way that I am oh really then why aren't you that way when you talk about your favorite football team it's not that you're not excitable It's just that you're not excited about this which seems inconsistent considering that you're claiming that Christ saved your soul. When truth is not accompanied by passion it's seen as disingenuous and indeed on some level it has to be. So that concludes communicating wisdom wisely which again accounts for the overwhelming majority of this address but our next point is point number two humbly communicate your need to others. We'll look at a passage that we've looked at previously, but with different eyes this time. Proverbs 6, 1 through 3, my son, if you become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger, if you have been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself. Since you have come into the hand of your neighbor, go humble yourself and importune your neighbor. So, this gentleman got out ahead of his skis. His mouth made promises that his checkbook could not account for. He has entered into a financial arrangement, financial obligations he cannot meet. And Solomon is saying, If you've done this, go to the person that you did it with and say, Listen, truthfully, I'm in over my head. And then importune your neighbor to do what? To work out some sort of arrangement? Can we reduce the interest? Can we knock uh, a certain amount off in interest? What can we do so that I can, as he goes on to say later there, free myself, emancipate myself from this debt? But you start with, I screwed up. I have to have the humility to say that. I had to do this once with a, a truck that I had purchased from a dear gentleman in a church. And I, I, I set out the terms for this truck, and they were aggressive, but I was able to, to meet them because of a particular contract that I had with a particular builder that fell through. And so a couple of weeks later, it became quite apparent that I was not going to be able to meet the terms of this contract. And I went in, and I had a very uncomfortable conversation with this person face-to-face, and I said, I have made promises that I cannot honor. Can I restructure this now? Um, you know, and I think I gave myself another couple months or whatever, and I ended up paying it off actually ahead of time because it was important to me to do so. But I had to say I made a mistake. If you imply or outright state that you can when you can't, and then you don't go back and rectify that, your pride is indeed going to come before your fall and your haughty spirit, before your destruction. Say you made a mistake. You'd like for that to never happen, going back to last week's sermon, but you and I have fallen, so it will. And when it does, just acknowledge it. And this lesson, of course, goes well beyond finances. In our context, people are typically under-involved in local churches because they are selfish. That's a culture-wide thing, but there are still people who are over-involved, who overcommit. You know, if you've done something like that, go, let people know, And don't leave them in the lurch, but say, hey, I I really, I took on too much. Please forgive me. And in grace, people, of course, will. Point number three, speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. And you may remember back to last week and say, but I thought you told me to mind my own business. Oh indeed I did. Proverbs twenty six, seventeen, like one who takes a dog by the ears to see who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. You know what that happens when you grab that dog by the ear when two dogs are fighting? Turns his head around and it bites you. So stay out of that situation. But that's a reference to mutual and personal conflict. This is the oppression of the innocent, the afflicted, and the needy. To intervene in a matter that doesn't concern you makes you foolish, but to ignore the suffering of those who cannot help themselves makes you godless. This is the verbal equivalent of observing the beaten, half-dead man lying on the side of the road and then crossing to the other side of the road so that you don't stain your shoes with that poor fellow's blood or excrement or whatever else happens to be seeping out of him in like manner as the priest and the Levite of the famed Good Samaritan account. When you consider this whole issue, speaking for those who can't speak for themselves, I want you to consider your plight before Christ. Did He intervene on your behalf? Did He speak up for you? Does He not now speak for you? And forevermore, as your great and high priest, He defended the afflicted, and needy. You were the afflicted, and needy you still are. He intervened then, he intervenes now. Now ask yourself on that basis how consistent with the Christian faith is the notion of leaving the defenseless to suffer with no intervention. It's not consistent at all. But now to the application here, and this time actually I am going to let you apply this point I'm quite confident that you'll go in the right direction if I simply offer you a primer. So here it is. What segment or demographic in our wicked society comes to mind first when you consider the concept of open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate? Who, what group, that cannot speak for themselves your doggone right, the unborn? Absolutely. They are being slaughtered in the womb. Their blood cries out from the ground, but it is left to God's people to speak out for them beyond that. And not just children in the womb anymore, is it? Can little toddlers who are being told that they are different sex, can they defend themselves? No, they cannot. They don't know to be able to speak. So we are to speak on their behalf. But in all instances, when people cannot speak for themselves, it falls upon the people of God to speak for them, to intervene in like manner as your Savior did. Point number four: speak your sin. Proverbs 28:13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And this is especially important in the context of parenting. It is through the lack of this that many otherwise very good parents unwittingly render themselves hypocrites and therefore shipwreck the faith of their children. Do you remember, back to the first sermon, when I stressed that we must not reduce Proverbs to mere behavioral mandates? that this is the outflow of identity, this is born-again living, well, you, mom and dad, must, must, must not make that mistake in your parenting either, or all you're going to do is teach your children how to be condemned, but never to be saved by grace. Now, how does this relate to confessing sin per the proverb? Well, acknowledging your sin before your children necessarily invokes the remedy for your sin, which is the gospel. And it also makes sense of your inconsistency in applying the biblical commands in your own life as a still-being-sanctified Christian. So the formula is, as it should be, child so-and-so, I give you moral commands. Yet I, as you, do not live up to the standard of these moral commands. But I, as you, don't need to be a hypocrite on this basis, and we are not condemned because of this, because Jesus kept all of these moral commands perfectly. But here's how it often is. Gospel is somewhere in the background. Because you go to a gospel preaching church, it's there, but it's not really talked about nearly as often as it should be or applied consistently or in a way that really makes sense to the children. But what is constantly on display is mom and dad giving good and biblical moral commands to the children. But then mom and dad fail to live up to their own standard because, of course... But when they fail because of sin, there's no acknowledgment of it to the children that they have sinned in front of and against. And this makes them, from the perspective of the children, theoretically Christians saved by grace, but practically hypocrites who require a standard that they deny in practice on a regular basis. So then here is this formula. You have the standard of the law being given, but not being kept by the one who's giving it. And you have no grace being given because there's no confession of the sin that necessitates grace, which is manifestly hypocritical and typically results in children's apostasy. This is what children who leave the Christian faith, who come from Christian parents, cite more than anything. Do I believe all of them? No, I don't. Okay. Is it used as a justification when it's not actually the reason? Often, sure. Always, no. No. Often there really is a disconnect, and right here is where that disconnect is. You know, it it became in vogue a while ago, I don't know when, to say, well, all Christians are hypocrites. And I have actually said this because it sounded like right or humble, I don't know. That's not true. Okay, can we all be hypocritical at times, and are we? Absolutely. Absolutely. But to say that you are hypocritical or that you are a hypocrite rather is a statement of being. That's who you are. That defines you. That's not what defines the Christian. And it's a good thing because Jesus spoke a lot about hypocrites and they all go to hell. So I hope you're not one. All right? Giving a standard and not living up to that standard while claiming that you are living up to that standard makes you a hypocrite. Giving a standard, not living up to that standard, and saying, I don't live up to that standard and that's why I need Jesus, makes you a Christian who knows how to articulate their faith. A lot of times what prevents us from acknowledging our sin in front of our children is that we don't need to justify ourselves to our children in this notion well, amen, I don't need to justify myself to them. But confessing my sin to them in more than a very generic way and my need for a Savior isn't me justifying myself before them. It's me explaining to them how Christ has justified me before God and therefore how he can do the same for them. Listen, there are a whole lot of things that you can fail at as a Christian parent and by the grace of God those sins are covered. A whole lot of things. And praise the Lord for it because I failed in like all of those ways. So you have as well. And as I said not that long ago, you're all here. You're the product of very failed parents. And yet by the grace of God, that's covered. You though cannot, and I need you to hear me, Christian mom and dad. This is the thing that you cannot fail at. You cannot fail to gospel those kids. There isn't a remedy for that. You can screw up a lot of stuff, but the remedy is the gospel. So if you withhold the gospel, there's no hope. And you resort to mere moralism because you're content with the outside of the cup being polished while the inside of the cup is filthy you must not fail by covering up the grace of God and your need for it which reveals to your children their need for it. And this doesn't happen without confession of sin in their purview. So to the negative example of my character that can be drawn from the situation with the pipe bursting. When I walked through the front door there was this cognitive dissidence, and I was hit by steam in my face which at time I didn't understand, but it was accounted for shortly by the waterfall hitting the wood burner. And so a lot of stuff was happening. There was standing water. It was chaos. And one of my children offered an explanation for this that pertained to the wood burner. Now, in the moment, in hindsight, uh, this doesn't make any sense. But in the moment, I connected the fact that, believe it or not, my children do not enjoy gathering firewood on a regular basis to this particular explanation, and thought to myself, you little punk, now is not the time to find a backhanded way to complain about having to gather firewood. So I encouraged them to stop speaking in the strongest possible terms, Um, and None of this was accurate, okay? I was coming up with solutions that make any sense at all either because, you know, it's, it's crazy. Came up with a, a roof leak. That was my first thought. It's 15 degrees outside and it's not raining. How's the roof leaking? Okay, so we're all just grasping at straws. And so I feel bad about this. This actually has a funny ending. My sin's not funny, but the end of this story is. I feel bad about this. I think it was the day after. It should have been Christmas Day. I go to this child and I say, listen, I need to apologize to you For this, I did this and this and this and this. And that child said, you did? I didn't even remember the chaos of the circumstance to which I responded, what? No, that's crazy. You know how dad is, just being silly. No, I didn't. I said, uh, yeah, I did. Glad you don't remember. But they got to see that. And by the way, to say that you must gospel your children and you can't afford to not do that, I have to acknowledge I don't do that as much as I should. Again, I don't do that perfectly either, but you do have to do it consistently. Point number five, we must speak peace. We must speak peace. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 10.12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Now, what is the opposite of strife? And it's also quite contrary to wrath as well. How about Peace. So the lesson is that we can and should speak in a way that brings grants and enables peace in others. So then you might be inclined to say that Christians ought to be counselors of peace. What say Solomon? Proverbs twelve twenty deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. Indeed. To be a Christian is to be a loving, kind, compassionate. An empathetic person. To weep with those who have been weeping. Going back to Chris's lesson. We have been made new by the Spirit and these are the qualities that he imbues us with. As such, when we see people who are hurting, even if they're hurting because they hurt themselves, as is often the case with them and with us, we want to see that war within them end. And if they're unbelievers, we want to see that internal conflict end in salvation. But if they are already believers, then we want to see that war within them end with the peace of God experienced anew. And this was the call of Jesus, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, who are weighed down, who cannot handle any more weight being placed upon them. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now the ability to accomplish the means of peace is Christ alone. That we are all, every one of us, commanded to be peacemakers. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, very clearly, Christians are the only peacemakers. So, I want you to think for a moment about how many more people there are in the world that don't promote peace than there are that do. Man, we are an infinitesimal percentage of the population. Everybody else makes war, the vast majority of souls on earth. And yet, peace is what they all yearn for. It's true even of unbelievers. Their own sinful hearts betray them in this pursuit, but at their deepest levels they still despair of the constant fighting. So here are the facts. In desperation the human race seeks peace. But the only peacemakers to be found are Christians. Man, is there a premium for us in the world? We are the sole possessors in Christ of the most sought-after resource in the human experience, and that is an end to the fighting, an end to the struggle. What an awesome thing that is. What a profound power. I don't know how, it doesn't make sense, but I frequently forget about the power of the Christian life and how powerful we have been made That this treasure has been poured into our little clay pots. This is the manifestation of that power. Samson tore apart a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass. What an awesome display of power. But that was destruction. Greater destruction because it was the wrath of God. But it existed in a category in which the world understands. To destroy. They don't have this at all. They don't have life. They can't speak life. They can't give life. We alone have this power. We alone in Christ have been granted the grace of borrowing it. We may encounter a group or an individual who is gnawing at themselves or at each other. And we see hatred stirring up strife, and hatred is formidable. Hatred is a force of nature. Hatred can and has dictated the course of generations, but we through the gospel of grace have the power to with our words cover all transgressions. There is nothing in all the world so disarming as loving speech. And this effect is much magnified in circumstances where it is least expected or thought to be warranted. Let me give you a few examples of this. We're in Genesis a lot today. Genesis 32, starting in verse 6. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, If Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. Genesis 33. Then Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last but he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. The bill's come and due for what Jacob has done to Esau and all his treachery. It has caught up to him. Be sure your sins will find you out. And now here is an army come to cut you down and all your generations all that you stole when you stole his birthright will come to naught anyhow and he's ready verse 4 then he saw ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept he lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said who are these with you and so he said, the children, whom God has graciously given your servant. And the maids came near with their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children, and they bowed down. And after, Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. And he said, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. That's power. Jason, Jacob, Jacob came expecting death but was granted life-giving peace. There's another situation, that with Joseph. You know what's happened. He's been sold into slavery, spent time in prison. His life has been upended. His children are heirs technically to another nation. They have feigned his murder. He has been bereft of his family, of the father whom he loved. And who so loved him in Genesis 41, 1-5. After he has gone back and forth with his brothers who do not know who he is, their resolves. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from Me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Oh yeah, dismayed indeed, considering that the one they've done all this to now has the power to slaughter them. And then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph's brothers came expecting death, but they were granted life-giving peace. And one more, as we have referenced Moses often. Numbers 12, then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. Cushite woman means Ethiopian. And her ethnicity was frowned upon. And I could explain to you how I know that the color of her skin was not seen uh, as something of value or as something that they liked, but I will show you as we continue to go on. It will become clear. Uh, But bear in mind here, they're insulting the man's wife. In addition to that, though, they said, As the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses, Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, You three come out of the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent. And he called Aaron and Miriam. When they had both come forward, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, leprous, as white as snow. As Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. If you are one of those who believes that God indeed has a sense of humor, here's a proof text for you. I don't like the Kushite woman, the Ethiopian Her skin is dark. You like white skin, do you? Now you're white as a sheet of paper. Sure, it's because your flesh is rotting. Nevertheless, you've got to take the good with the bad, I guess, huh? But verse 11, Then Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us, in which we have acted foolishly and in which we have sinned. O do not let... Her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Moses then cried out to the Lord saying, O God, heal her, I pray. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, she would not bear her shame, or would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterward she may be received again. So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, And the people did not move until Miriam was received again. Miriam was received again because of Moses' intervention. She denounced the man's wife, insulted her, insulted her ethnicity, and then they tried to usurp his authority, in effect what would have been an insurrection. And Moses stands there with all the power of the Christian life and grants her and Aaron life-giving peace. Going back to where we started, can you imagine Adam and Eve speaking with words not even touched by sin? Nor can I. But I do know that we are the closest thing that this world will ever get to experiencing words that only bring forth life. And so we must not neglect this great power that we have been given. You and I cannot quell literal storms, as we read about in the Psalms. We cannot, as our Lord did, calm the seas with a word. But we can quell the storms inside the souls of others by imparting to them life-giving words that come from Scripture, words that are seasoned with grace, with hearts that are sincerely peaceful, and loving and kind so go speak life, Christian Heavenly Father we praise you and we thank you for your good gift of language Lord, we tend to focus on the negative because we as people struggle mightily in this area living in this fallen space that help us to remember all the good that we may do with our mouths. Lord, give us this grace and help the world to see You and hear You through the words that we say. And we praise You and we thank You for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.